James 1, 2-4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, I bring us before us today a very familiar and well-known passage in the Bible. This is a passage which many Christians are familiar with and some of you have probably even memorized But it is a cornerstone passage. It might be a temptation to discard a passage because it is so familiar. But really, I tend to think the opposite. If something is so well known, we should ask the question, why has it been long held dear by the saints? Why does it keep getting returned to? And how can we be reminded of it freshly today? This is a cornerstone passage in God's Word that we need to build our lives continually upon. It is the subject of when you and I meet trials. The when in the verse speaks of certainty that every believer meets trials. Some in this room are in the middle of a trial. Others may be getting out of a trial and others may soon face a trial. Whichever one you and I fall into, this is a relevant passage because we need to hear from God about this certain occurrence in the Christian life. And so I've titled the sermon simply, Enduring Trials. Enduring Trials. And I chose to keep it at that because it's really not enough to speak of looking to the end of a trial or even overcoming trials. Because we have, as God's people need to know how we should think in the midst of trials. In other words, yes, it's, it's helpful to know that a trial has an end at some point. Amen to that. But that doesn't diminish the present pain of experiencing the trials. Really, a lot of the New Testament is a call to endure. Many, are, many trials are uncertain as to their ending. Some are in seasons. Others in years. Others can be lifelong. And many times, what we need to know, just to hold on to in the midst of a trial, is just to endure. And how to endure And Scripture meets us right where we're at. That word endure is actually very helpful because it assumes some things. Uh, The word endure implies that while we patiently go through trials, we we do so while still experiencing its anguish and the effects. Uh, The pain in a trial is very real. We're called to endure. And God's Word gives us guidance in how we endure. And I would like to consider these long-held dear passages, these verses to the saints written by James. Let's look at them now 
And by the Holy Spirit, may they become more dear to us at the end of our time. There's three things I want to point out about trials in these verses. Three things we will look at. Number one, I see the perspective of trials. Two, the product of trials. And three, the purpose of trials. The perspective of trials. The product of trials. The purpose of trials. And I want to jump straight in just so we can hear from God's Word. Let's start with verse 2. It begins like this. Count it all joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think it's fitting that we would be instructed by the Lord through His servant James to begin with the proper perspective of meeting trials in our lives. Because really, everything we see in the world around us is to be seen differently by believers than unbelievers. Uh, What the world sees in this world and what we see is in a different lens. Because they only have an earthly perspective by their senses and by the ideas and the attitudes in their own mind and heart. Uh, But we have another lens from which to put on. It is the lens of the Bible which is the divine view of things in this world. That's the gift of the Scriptures, which we went through last time I spoke. That God is speaking when we open this book. He's telling us how things really are. And one of those things that we get to see with a divine view is trials. When unbelievers see difficulties in their life, Um, That causes them pain and trouble. Uh, They feel as though everything is amiss. Everything is in chaos. They feel defeated. They feel a sense of hopelessness unless it ends soon. Uh, They're only looking at the things that are lost, the things that are in disarray. But when we as believers are in the midst of trials, we're to see them by a different lens, by bringing trials uh, into the focus of how God wants us to see them. That's the essence of what James is actually calling for at the outset of this opening. I need to say this. It's not a call to deny the reality of life's adversities. It's a call to perspective. We really need to understand that. I think this verse has been used to unnecessarily slam and even guilt others in ways it was not intended. This does not diminish the anguish of trials. The verse begins by saying a statement that has often, frankly, been misconstrued and even used insensitively on other saints who are grieving. That they ought to change their mood. Flip that, you know, switch on. Stop grieving. Stop being in anguish. Start being more joyful. And of course, I'm speaking of the words, count it all joy, my brothers. Now, in delving into the perspective that James is setting for his readers, we need to clarify from the outset, once again, this is not a call to deny our suffering. 
That we're not called to put on a superficial, happy act and, and just pretend like we're not going through pain. Otherwise, it's not really suffering. Scripture has a different view. Scripture doesn't really see those as binary, joy and sorrow. And we need to get that straight first. Often, joy can be experienced alongside sorrow. So we need to more define joy. 1 Corinthians 6.10 says, We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the Christian life. It was said of Jesus in Hebrews 12.1 that He had joy set before Him. And yet we know He was a man of sorrows. And this shows that it's no sin to experience sorrow, even deep sorrow. And some of us need to hear that. It is no sin to experience pain. It also shows that it's possible to have sorrow and yet also have joy-sustaining endurance. And so James wants us to have a perspective. So we need to ask the question, uh, what is this joy that he has in mind? What is God revealing about trials and how we experience them? I would argue that joy isn't superficial, but begins as a mindset. It's not merely emotional, although it eventually manifests itself that way. It begins with a mindset and a proper perspective. It's actually a word that's used here that is logical. The phrase James uses is, count it all joy. That word count is sometimes translated consider. And count is really a fitting translation in the ESV. The word count, even in the original, was actually a logical, mathematical term. I know the last thing you want when you're suffering is to do math, but it's actually a mathematical term. And I want to tell you why that's good news. The action that's being called for has to do with counting and evaluating something. That's the word that it originally means. In other words, in the context of meeting trials, you're assessing the trial and giving an evaluation. And James is basically saying here, take a good, fresh evaluation of your present trials and do the math. Make a a T-chart. The idea is you're looking at the pluses and the minuses. You're adding it all up and getting to the bottom line of the matter. You're looking at the profits and the losses. Now that's important to clarify because in this careful counting, this mindset, pain is not diminished. You're acknowledging that there are painful minuses and there are real minuses in our life. But the thrust of what James is saying, as you're doing this logical math, so to speak, this evaluation, as you're counting those minuses, you're seeing that the pluses for the believer far outweigh those minuses. That if you put on the biblical lens of all that God has for His people, 
even in and through trials, you would see in doing the math that logically the bottom line is there is room for pure joy. Not unmixed from sorrow, but nonetheless, joy. And this is really the encouragement that gets missed from this passage when we just make it a superficial on and off switch. It's a call to see the bigger picture than you and I often see. We all need to do the math when we're in trials. We need to add it all up and and get to the bottom line of the matter. And James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that you and I are to see it and count it all joy. In fact, as we'll see, the trials themselves have their own necessary value. So you can count it all joy. Because even the minuses will work together for good. That's a total different perspective. It's a totally different, unnatural to us perspective that James calls for us to have. It doesn't deny pain. It doesn't diminish suffering and trials. But it's a call to see them with an attitude of joyful rest in the sovereign and providential hand of God in them. And note again, having addressed them as brothers, this is to believers, he doesn't say count it all joy after the trials are over. But when you meet the trials. This is a perspective that takes place by faith during the trials. As we meet the trials and feel the pain. When we're enduring, we're suffering. And suffice it to know, our Heavenly Father knows best. And from His perspective, from His lens, which we're given to put on with Scripture, it is as good as counted all joy. I've always loved a precious line in the historic Heidelberg Catechism. It's a very old confession of faith put together by Reformed churches. The Heidelberg Catechism, I think it's on day nine, it's arranged in days, says this line. It's always in the first person. My God and my Father, on whom I rely so entirely, I have no doubt but He will provide me with all things necessary for soul and body. And further, that He will make whatever evils He sends upon me in this valley of tears turn out to my advantage. For He is able to do it, being Almighty God and willing, being a faithful Father. Beautiful words of truth. Confessed and held dear by many saints. That's a doctrinal confession, by the way. I recommend you read the whole Heidelberg Catechism. It's, it's really something that saints have communicated really well, and many of whom suffered at the time. A good and faithful father. Back to verse 2 in James. 
There's one other aspect of this perspective in verse 1 I want to highlight before we move on. So first, do the math, which he's going to explain in the rest of the verse. But then he says this, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, now that's actually a significant detail that he says various kinds because we're not just dealing with one particular type of trial. There's not just one type of circumstance that merits the feeling of joy, such as maybe persecution would be expected. Persecution is a a noble kind of suffering because you're standing for Christ and enduring it. That might be seen as more of the, the noble one that you can have joy in. And there are some groups, some health and wealth groups, that teach persecution is the only kind of suffering. If you're suffering in any other way, you must be doing something wrong. But this passage says there's various kinds. That was, of course, a, a major trial for the, the ones that James is writing to. There was persecution happening. But James stresses, just to cover all bases, it's more than that. It's various kinds of trials that meet us. There are many troubles in this life. And they vary from believer to believer. Oftentimes, there's more than one trial. It's in the plural here. For some, there's family trials. Others have financial trials. Some physical trials. Some vocational trials. And on and on. The word various is actually interesting. It's actually used as the word in the Greek Septuagint of the Old Testament for Joseph's coat of many colors. It says that he had a coat of various colors, implying that there's a a spectrum of different kinds, and that's the way we're to view trials. There's not just one. There's a different spectrum of trials in the Christian life. And the idea is that many times there's combinations of these things. In each and all can be counted as all joy. True, you're in the midst of these trials. But take heart, James is saying, God is in the midst of these trials. And our God is an intentional, wise, and good Father in what He brings. I mean, consider this. God has various trials from which to work with. If you confess the sovereignty of God and His providence in our lives, that means He's got a toolbox of different trials He uses for different one of His saints. And He is using various trials, and there are also various designs depending on the believer, suiting each one's particular needs. John Newton said this about trials. John Newton said, Trials really are medicines which our gracious and wise physician prescribes because we need them. And he proportions the frequency and weight of them to what the case requires. End quote. This is the perspective. Have a perspective of the trial. Have a perspective of God and the various trials. And to further flesh out this cause for joy, he needs to really explain this, and that's what he's about to do as we press on in this passage. 
I want to consider the next aspect of this. Not just the perspective, but what's the perspective of? And that is, verse 3, the product of trials. Let's look at the product of trials. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Again, this is one of those verses we've heard so many times. I wonder if we've really lost the magnitude of what it's saying. That there is a product here that should be precious to the believer. Steadfastness. One of the things this verse shows us as we put on the divine lenses is why our sufferings are called trials. The word trials really are just that. They are tests in the Christian life. They're not just random events. They are appointed as tests. And this is insightful because when we meet various trials, our faith, according to this passage, is being tested. This assumes there's a design in our circumstances particular to us A design that takes measures to check for quality. That's the definition of a test. That's its function. And in this case, on the exam is our faith. In a classroom, tests are often given, often as a standard way to gauge where students are at in their learning. I know this well. Someone can claim they know a subject... They can hear about the subject often. They can read a lot about the subject. But the way to check for mastery, at least the quality of their learning, is to give some kind of test. It might be an exam. It might be a pop quiz. That's the way you find out. That's when you see if it's real. That's where you see mastery. And it's not just a classroom, it's really anything. If you're learning to be a mechanic and you're learning from your mentor how to fix something, I'm sure at some point in that apprenticeship model, the mentor is going to say, okay, I've shown you this, this, and this. Now you try. It's all you. And you have to show whether you actually can do what you've seen and learned. And if you fail, you're going to try again. Or perhaps more precisely, what James may have in mind in his context was when in the ancient world you tested the quality of things such as precious metals. Uh, Precious metals like gold would be placed in a furnace and oftentimes that would be the test to see if there was dross or other alloys that would burn off. That's the idea here of trials. You and I could hear sermons about the Christian life. We could read our Bibles and study them well. We can be disciple in the things of God. But eventually, God has the prerogative at any time to interrupt our lives and give us a test. Because the question is, what if your faith isn't authentic? What if there's areas you need to improve in? And and no shock, there are many areas in the flesh we need to improve in. What if we're just doing things because things are going well? 
and we don't actually love God. That's what was brought up by Satan concerning Job. Well, as soon as he suffers, he's going to curse you. And then came the series of tests. God is in the process of sanctifying his people and training them to be like Christ. And he has that sovereign prerogative. He has the prerogative to send uh, these providential interruptions in our plans to test whether we live what we believe. And it's not for him to find out and see. It's really that we may see. And note, it's not merely to seeing whether our faith will be steadfast through tests, but what gives us more joy is that steadfastness is the product itself. That's a unique part of this verse. You might expect it to be a call to be steadfast in the trial, which it sort of is. But steadfastness is also the gift and product of trials. Some versions say perseverance, and others say patience or endurance. It's a repeated theme in the New Testament for every saint. There's an ultimate sense in which steadfastness can be spoken of as as proving that we are saved. And there's also an immediate personal sense in which our day-to-day need is for steadfastness because sanctification is up and down. Trials test us for steadfastness and produce steadfastness. And James says, get this, they produce it. In other words, what this is saying is if there were not trials, you would not be steadfast. That's how fallen and limited we are in our current state. I didn't actually type it in here, but it popped in my mind. I remember C.S. Lewis saying something to the effect of, you could really ignore anything in this life, even pleasure you could choose to ignore, but pain insists to be given attention to. Uh, God, I think he says God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, and he shouts to us in our pain. In other words, you know how you need steadfastness as a Christian. You know how you're always wanting to be more consistent and immovable in the Christian life. We all long for that. What we need is trials. That's a whole different perspective from the world, right? I mean, you need trials. Again, not diminishing the pain But the world seeks out a trouble-free life as the pursuit of success and the goals that they have because their goals are merely earthly. Christians have a different goal that the Lord has set them on. It is sanctification. And this is where we need to gauge what is our goal and MO in life. Trials really test that. Are we seeking steadfastness in our faith? God appoints sufferings as a gift to His children. As a, what some call a severe mercy. It's actually 
too much of this world's goods and an easy life that marks the broad path to destruction. It's actually the good things in this life that often have a tendency to pull our hearts away and make us comfortable with idols. John Calvin said uh, the heart is an idol factory. And we need to be weaned off of that in the way that God has graciously put it in place to wean us is through trials, through tests, even severe tests. And through them, He strengthens our faith and and burns away the alloys of unbelief and insincerity that we may not even have realized were there. It's out of love for our souls that our Father does this. Because if He didn't love us as His children, uh, He would let us go on that broad and easy path to destruction. Another phrase that pops out here for me from James is he says, for you know these things. For you know. That that word know is is more than just head knowledge. It it speaks of the heart. It, It speaks of having an intimate knowledge that grips your heart. He says, you know these things. He says, we must know these sufferings, these trials of various kinds, that they are tests for our faith producing steadfastness. A kind of steadfastness that will last to the end until we receive the reward from our Master. Later in verse 12, he says, steadfastness under trials leads to the crown of life. So we have a perspective of trials, which involves counting all joy, doing the math, We have a product of trials, namely greater steadfastness in the faith. And closely related to those, James continues to a third point, and that is the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials. And this one really tries what we really value in life. Uh, Steadfastness is not an end in itself, but verse 4 says it has its own effect. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's let's take a look at this effect of steadfastness. And we'll see that the overall purpose of our trials is here. A word needs to be said about, first of all, that first word, which is that we may be perfect. I should probably just clarify that off the bat. Uh, None of us, of course, are ever going to be perfect in this life. This is not speaking of sinless perfection in this life. It's important to know how the New Testament often uses this word, including here, and it is to communicate not flawlessness, but bringing to maturity. Bringing to maturity. It's referring to Christ-like spiritual maturity. That's the effect of steadfastness. The same can be said of the word complete. It's not speaking of of having your entire act finally together with no room for growth or improvement. Rather, it's, it's more speaking of removing gaps and weaknesses in our Christian growth. Lacking in nothing. 
Uh, Trials can expose where we lack godliness, where we lack self-control, where we lack contentment, and so on. It shows the gaps. And trials mature us to be more like Christ. And this gets to the heart of God's providential design in our afflictions. That He's doing a, a precise work in our character. As Jesus said, He's the vine dresser pruning us like branches that we might bear much fruit. Trials mature us. Now, it could also be said that there's a, an ultimate sense in which, holistically speaking, there is a continual work of steadfastness that will result in t- final perfection and completion. Before the throne, after trial, after trial, and steadfastness, after greater steadfastness, there's going to come a time when the believer, after death, culminates with glorification. And so it really is going there, but by degree while we're in the flesh. And I think in glory, that's when we're going to have a much greater grasp of how much of a gift our Lord gave when He let us meet trials. What a mercy it was to test us because they contributed to our ultimate end to be more like Jesus. That's, that's the grand objective. And that brings a question. Is that your grand objective? That's God's grand objective. If you're a Christian, it is to be more like Christ. Is it yours? Is that your burning desire? Is it mine? This is a convicting, soul-searching question for all of us. None of us can say with a total 100% that that's always our great pursuit. We fall way short. But Romans 8.29 says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's, that's the great project the Lord is doing. And you and I lose that vision, that ultimate aim, so easily. Because what we do in our flesh is we set up all these little purposes for why we still exist in this world. We're here in this fallen life and we've created in our idolatry-prone heart all of these little purposes to live for and when they're threatened or taken away, we might collapse. Uh, Family and friends, perhaps our work or profession, hobbies we have and other passions and enjoyments. If these become chief, if these become the ultimate end for why we live, then yes, when they're taken away or when they're threatened by trial, we fall. We're like the world in that way and everything is amiss. how soul-searching trials are as a test. We can succumb to an attitude even of accusing God of taking away our reasons to live. And I think that's what he starts to get into later in this passage. Accusing God of tempting. We lose sight so easily Because we often have the lenses that the world has on. But here's the reality of the matter that we often forget. 
you and I were once hell-bound rebels. Did you forget that? Do I forget that? I was once deserving and still deserving in myself of God's justice. We were condemned. We were not entitled to heaven, let alone anything good in this life on earth. When we were saved and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, we were given grace beyond measure. Amazing grace. A new restored identity to become who we were meant to be. In the, we were meant to be vessels to glorify God. And that was effaced in Adam. But now He has done a work where He will sanctify us and make us more like the second Adam. Christ Himself. Christ-likeness is why we're still here. To lose that vision of ourselves in our sanctification with its central aim and His work in us, to lose that is to become twisted up with the world's perspective. And we're very twisted up because we're shocked All of us, we become shocked and and surprised when trials come our way. And we forget that what's shocking is not trials. What's shocking is that we were ever blessed with anything good in the first place. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, uh, there was only one who suffered unjustly, and He volunteered. Christ. I knew a professor at Masters who, whenever he was asked how he's doing, it didn't matter when it was, he was always asked, how are you doing? His response was always, better than I deserve. Just to get us thinking. So in our twisted and backwards mindset, which happens so easily because it's ingrained in our our sinful, entitled, remaining corruption, God wakes us up. And God chips away at us and gets us back to the main program of conforming us to the image of His Son. The program of His glorious redemption to be more like Jesus. The person who is burning to be more like Jesus is willing to endure anything for that. So what James is saying, uh, do the math. Uh, Adjust your perspective. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And note in our passage, it implies there's a submission on our part. There's one word that Don't miss it. It says the word let. Let steadfastness have its full effect. It's an important point because you have a choice when trials come. You can be more hardened by the trial or there's an opportunity to be softened to receive lessons that God has for you to learn. That is so much easier said than experienced. We fail at this so much. 
And that's the point. We're not yet like Jesus. J.C. Ryle said, Every trial is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. End quote. And so we see trials produce steadfastness, and steadfastness has the effect of greater maturity. Now in stating that purpose to mature us and make us complete, more like Jesus, it's helpful, I think at this point, to consider what does that look like in specific ways? What does that look like? Because it can become kind of broad to say it makes you more like Jesus. And we know that. But I'm a big fan of often getting to the granular level. What does it actually look like in the Christian life from trial to trial? And in that sense, even though they all have that same grand purpose, I would like to propose there are sub-purposes that are often very different. Just as trials come in various kinds, there are various kinds of lessons. And so what I'll do in just the remainder of our time here is I just want to give a quick list of multiple Scriptures that give glimpses into the variety of ways trials can work in us. I think it's helpful to, to in suffering, to do the math and also consider what might be the overall purpose of sanctification in this trial. How is God getting my attention now? Here's a short list, and I, I hope and pray that it would be beneficial. I'm just going to get this from God's Word because I want us to hear it from Him. The Lord gives many scriptures about why He tests us through trials. Consider some of these. For one thing, uh, there's no, numerous examples in Scripture that indicate uh, trials have the effect of strengthening our faith. Strengthening our faith. And this is, of course, tied to what James is saying here. Uh, but there's multiple examples in Scripture of this in action. God wants to put us in a position on purpose that makes us trust Him more. I think of Abraham when he's asked to sacrifice Isaac. Or think of Job when Satan is given permission to afflict him and just to see how he's going to react. I think, of course, of Israel throughout the Old Testament. If you're reading your Old Testament, there's a continual test to see whether they're going to trust the Lord in leading them, providing for them. Not depending on their own military might. Not depending on other nations around them. Will they trust in God or themselves? 1 Chronicles 32-31. Great verse about King Hezekiah. And it can be said about each and any, every one of us. God said this about King Hezekiah. God left him to test him that he might know what was in his heart. That's a powerful one. That's one aim that God has in maturing us. To, to see really what's in our heart. Whether there is true faith or whether there's unbelief. Scripture also says that another effect of trials, this is another one, oftentimes trials are given to humble us. To humble us. 
A passage that comes to mind for this one is 2 Corinthians 12. You remember the Apostle Paul goes through all these sufferings and he describes one in which he has a thorn in his flesh. And what's the reason he says? He says God gave it to him lest he be exalted above measure. And so trials can have this effect. There's a, a sense in which God makes us weak or actually shows us we're weak so that we're sort of put back in our place. And that accentuates His sufficiency and His sufficient grace, not ourselves. Here's another one. Another effect of trials taught by Scripture in, in maturing us is that trials have the effect of making us more heavenly minded. They make us more heavenly minded. The pain of trials can cause us to cling less to the things in this life in ways that sermons and perhaps readings wouldn't. To long for being in His presence. Trials can sober us and and adjust us to have an eternal perspective. Consider these Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-17. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So trials take us and they help us to look beyond this life to the life to come. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In that passage, he even says we, we groan. That's an effect of trials. What a gift that God would give us a heavenly mindset. Another effect of trials taught by Scripture is in our maturing, they tend to reveal or redirect the supreme love of our hearts. Trials reveal or redirect the supreme love that exists in our hearts. Where our treasure is. They can expose idols, whether they be people or things in this life that we have come to love and give more affection than God. More than God. Consider this convicting verse. This is a a real sharp verse. Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. God says this to Israel. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So we see it plainly right there. God can test to see whether we love Him. He's testing our affections. I think of Abraham again. Even though chiefly, of course, faith was being tested, I tend to think, like A.W. Tozer and others, his love must have been tested. What's more precious, God or Isaac? Or I think of Jesus calling his disciples by a call to leave all and follow him. Do you love the Lord your God supremely? With all your heart? I trust all of us would affirm yes. What will the test reveal? 
And although that point is convicting, I want to make sure I state this. I'm not meaning for that just to be a convicting, guilty point. Because I actually think there's a comfort and an encouragement in that aspect of trials. Uh, Trials are also a providential opportunity to foster greater intimacy with God. It may be that through trials, God is inviting us to draw nearer to His side. That we'll be satisfied in Him. When you have a trial, don't view it as God being against you. View it as God's invitation to draw you to Himself. To to know Him more deeply. To walk with Him more closely. Like a father scooping up his children. I'll give one more. And there's, there's several more aspects of trials in maturing us. One more effect that Scripture teaches with regard to the effect of trials on us. Scripture also teaches that trials prepare us to help others and be useful. Trials prepare us for, for greater usefulness in the Christian life. They make us useful in ways that are unique to how He calls us to build others up. Perhaps there's a mission you have in this life from the Lord, an assignment that a season of trial may be preparing you for. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, He comforts us in our afflictions that we might comfort others in their afflictions. Isn't it interesting? We tend to only think about how trials will be about us. But many of the cases in Scripture show that trials prepared God's people for greater usefulness to those around Him. I think of Peter. Jesus tells him before his denial, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. And when you fall and are restored, go and strengthen your brothers. That means Peter would strengthen and encourage his brothers in a way and bless the church in a way that would be greater than if he had not experienced that intense trial. I think of many in Scripture who who went through hardships in seasons in preparation for great work that God had for them. Think about Joseph. I mean, long years of real trial. And God used it for the good of many in the famine. I think of Moses in this great trial as he was fleeing Pharaoh and has this long period of 40 years away from his kinsmen, away. And you may have thought that Moses' life was pretty much over, but he was just beginning the great usefulness God was preparing. And there would be more trials, of course. And on and on. Uh, Esther, many of the prophets, the apostles themselves. Sometimes we think that, we think, what are the purposes that God has for this trial for me? But perhaps He has purposes in mind that extend to the impact of others. All of these are are sub-purposes that fall under that same category of the great purpose that steadfastness in trials has the effect of maturing us as God's people. To be more like Jesus. 
it's not a wonder that these verses have been so dear and returned to by God's people. And these truths never lose relevance so long as we are in this life of various trials. I want to also say that it's not just a positive exhortation. There's also a warning embedded in this passage. There's a warning in this call to endure trials. We know it doesn't come naturally to us as fallen humans to remain steadfast under trials. And so there's actually brought with this a warning. And it is that enduring trials is also a matter of enduring temptations. In fact, the word test is also the same word for tempt. And they're both in this big passage in James 1. And so I'm actually going to save the next part about temptation for the next time I teach. This was enduring trials. Next time I would like to teach the next part, enduring temptations. And I'd like to really continue in this passage and show how these trials relate to temptation. And then there's all kinds of complex questions that will come from that, uh, such as if, if God is testing us, how can it then say later on that He doesn't tempt us if they're the same word? What does it mean to be tested versus tempted? How are they the same? How are they different? And then we won't really make it complicated. If it says later that God cannot be tempted, how then was Jesus, who was God, tempted? I'm going to save that whole ball of wax for next time. Suffice it to say in our closing, there is a perspective. There's math to do. And there's a product. And there's a glorious purpose to our suffering. And we won't have all the answers in this life, but as Spurgeon once wisely remarked, when we can't trace his hand, we can trust his heart. Let's pray. Father, we, we close knowing that this lesson doesn't close, but we will be returning to it throughout our lives. And we thank You, Lord, that You have so designed every atom and molecule and occurrence in our lives and in history for Your grand aim to bring Your people to be more like Jesus, to bring them into glory, and to bring glory to Yourself. Lord, we lack faith. We confess we lack love. We are lacking in many things. And we're not sufficient. Lord, would You strengthen our church? Would You strengthen our hearts to endure trials? Lord, would You draw us to You and to Christ that we would stand in the end and receive that crown of life from Him. Mature our church, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.